Uh, this evening, we're returning back to our, our series in the book of uh, Joshua. This evening, we'll be looking at Joshua chapter 16 and chapter 17, <clears throat> as is my custom with these settlement uh, narratives. I'm going to skip a couple of verses as we start chapter 16, specifically 5a, uh, 5b rather, through 9. I'll indicate as much as I read these. So you'll find this on page 191 if you're utilizing a pew Bible. Uh, again, Joshua 16 and 17. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give careful attention to it. Chapter 16, verse 1. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. Then going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Atarath, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes downward westward of the territory of the Japhletites, as far as the territory of Lord Bet-Haran, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. Verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, to Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Hillek, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemitah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now Zelephahad, the son of Hefer, a son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza. They approached Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their fathers. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Michmatheth, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southward to the inhabitants of Entepua. The land of Tepua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tepua and the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook of Cana. These cities to the south of the brook among the cities of Manasseh belong to Ephraim. Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on north of the brooks and ends at the sea. The lands of the south being Ephraim's and to the north being Manasseh's with the sea forming in its boundary. On the north, Asher's reach and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshean and its villages, and Iblium and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Tanakh and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The third is Nephat. Yet the people of Manasseh 
could not take possession of those cities. But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land, in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourself to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the parasites and the refrain, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Our glorious Heavenly Father, this is your word. Your word is true. We ask that you would sanctify us by your word. Your word is true. We ask that you would grow us in your image. We ask that you speak through us uh, in these verses in such a way that we would have our hearts and our minds illumined by those things that you would have us to know and learn and hear from this particular text. Magnify our Lord as always in all that we hear, see, and do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in, last, in the last three weeks, we've been looking at God's fulfillment of his promise to provide a physical demographic to his people, Israel. Today, we call uh, this demographic the promised land. Along the way, we've noted that there's a lot more going on in, in these chapters than merely the provision of a specific demographic boundaries to specific tribes and people. Frankly, this revelation should not be a surprise to us since those of us on this side of the cross are well acquainted with the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.16, which states, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That scripture, as it relates to our passage this evening, further reminds me of Paul's usage of Israel's wilderness experience in his first letter to the Corinthians. There in chapter 10, he wrote, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now based on those texts of scripture you just heard, I want to ask and, and answer the following questions as we look at this text. What instruction can we glean from the allotment of land to Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh? Second, why is there this consistent mention of the various tribes' failure to drive out the inhabitants of the land? And third, what can we learn from the daughters of Zelophehad? So now before I attempt to answer those questions, let me first remind you of something I said last week. That is in the case of Israel. We see them inheriting land that was supposed to be used as a resource to draw the nations to God. 
they were literally given a renewed ability to fulfill the cultural mandate found in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over the earth. And this is again repeated in Genesis 9 where we hear, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so to what end was Adam and Eve to do that? To what end was Noah supposed to do that? Malachi 2.15 provides us with the answer as it relates particularly to Adam and Eve. In Malachi 2.15, we hear these words. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? The answer, godly offspring. And so the first Adam failed to produce godly offspring for as the scriptures tell us, all of us were born in sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. God then called a nation to do the same, to produce godly offspring, to spread the fame of his name. And that's what we have before us, Israel. God through Joshua, a type of Christ, giving his people the resource, in this case it's the land, that they were to use not only to produce righteousness amongst themselves, but to perpetuate that righteousness throughout the earth, to spread God's kingdom, to advance his kingdom. Now we on the side, on this side of the cross, like Israel, were rescued from bondage and led to a place of rest by the true and better Joshua, Jesus. That is to say we are at peace with God. The hostility between him and us has been done away with through the finished work of our Lord. We have been saved, delivered, set free from the wrath of God, the world, our flesh, and the devil. And beyond that, we have been set on a path to glory, a road called sanctification, wherein we, like Israel, have been provided with resources not land in this case, but spiritual gifts and blessings. And now instead of hearing that we are to be fruitful, to just hearing we are to be fruitful and multiply, we additionally hear all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now the words might be different, but the mantle of responsibility as well as the principles of success are still the same. Hence the exhortation that what we have before us, at least in principle, was written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. And so with that reminder in hand, let me attempt to, answer, to ask and again answer the three questions I posed. First, what instruction can we glean from the allotment of land to Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh? The first thing I would say is that God is more concerned about your sanctification than he is about your status and how much you possess. Note that chapter 16 is all about the allotment of land that was given to Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. Joseph's son, in the midst of all the mentioning of territories and boundaries, here's an interesting thing to note in the midst of all that. Verse 4 starts off mentioning Manasseh first, 
And this seems right because since he was the firstborn. But then immediately following this, when the writer communicates who is to receive what, starting in verse 5, he starts with Ephraim, the younger son. Now at this point, some of you might remember the account of Jacob blessing Joseph's two sons. That account is found in chapter uh, 48 in the book of Genesis. Jacob purposely placed his right hand on the head of the younger son Ephraim and his left hand on the, the head of the older son Manasseh. When Joseph saw this, he tried to correct his father by taking his hands and, and switching them. Jacob, however, refused and said he knew exactly what he was doing. He was sort of blind at this time. That's why Joseph thought he was making a mistake. But he knew exactly what he was doing. And so without going too much further into that story, because I'm assuming everyone knows it, let me go right to the point I'm making here and say that God, as we saw in chapter 15, where God was sovereign in the distillment of land and giving Judah the biggest blessing, knowing and us knowing how debauched Judah was in the same way here, God is sovereign or in his providence also in who he gives to whom for his purpose ultimately. It's all about his purposes, not about you and I. And, and if that is the case then, if we understand that, seeing this example of the younger receiving more than the older and God doing the same thing, he did the same with Jacob and Esau and other places in scripture, if we understand that, then we as Christians should, should take joy in seeing the people whom God has blessed more than us. There is no place in the Christian life for and to be envious or jealous or allow ourselves to entertain any other fallen notion when it comes to how God's blessings are disseminated amongst his people. All of us are called to glorify God with every single thing that we have. It all came from him and is all to be used for his purposes to advance his kingdom and he's using us however he wills. And we then should see those who are gifted, and we should rejoice in the fact that they're gifted. Those who have much, we should rejoice in the fact that they have much. A concise way of saying what I just said is this. God is sovereign in our salvation, and his providence is the central factor in what we receive in, through, and for our sanctification. All of us are being molded and shaped into the image of God, of Christ, and God knows exactly what we need for our sanctification and for the advancement of his kingdom. And thus, we are to find ourselves content in whatever state we are. Does that mean that we don't try to, 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 to utilize or to enhance our potential? No, we absolutely do. But we do not fall into the trap of the world of trying to usurp and to take over and to, 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 to covet other people's uh, stuff, but we take joy in what God is doing. Now, to go a little further concerning our sanctification and how it's related to what I just said, look at chapter 17, uh, verse 14. There we find these words. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? Now, let me remind you again that in chapter 15, Judah 
received a massive inheritance. The same Judah who we noted in Genesis 38 was as debauched in his conduct as anyone could be. If anyone should have expected the Lord to bless him so tremendously, it should not have been Judah as debauched as he was. But here we find that he received the biggest inheritance. Then here you have Joseph, who was as faithful as you can be. You remember in, in Potiphar's house, he suffered in jail. I mean, he, the entire time his brothers betrayed him. His father thought he was dead. So he was separated from his family for about, what, 20 years it was or something to that effect. And here you find this person who in the midst of all that served God so faithfully. And it seems by all accounts that his son, as sons as they were growing up, they weren't debauched either. And, but yet here they are, relegated to one lot and one portion. Let me ask you, have you ever felt that way? Like you serve God faithfully, yet you still have all kinds of trouble surrounding you, imposing upon you. And to make matters worse, the, optical, the obstacles all around you seem to be insurmountable. Here in our text, Joseph's tribe complains not only that we receive only one lot and one portion, this so while constantly being blessed by God, but the obstacles that are in our way are insurmountable. Those people have chariots of iron. Again, just think about it. If your car that's in the parking lot is your weapon and you want to fight against someone with an F-35, you know, the military's top fighter jet at this particular point, what chance would you have? This is how they felt. Not only have you given me one portion, but my goodness, you have put incredible odds in front of us. So I want you to see something, though, here, folks, that we should take to heart also. They literally just said the words, while constantly being blessed by God. They recognized that from generation to generation, from time to time, they were constantly being blessed by God. Now, if that's the case, shouldn't they have realized that this too, even just getting this one lot and this one portion, that this too must have been some kind of blessing? The God that has been blessing me all along, isn't he now blessing me also? Shouldn't they have taken the time to realize that Judah's inheritance, Judah's inheritance that was even greater than theirs, had a greater obstacle than theirs? Remember Anak, the Anakim and so on and so forth, that were the giants in the land that they spotted. Joshua asked by faith for that same property. And so the obstacles that we fought Judah was even greater than it was before them. And yet here they are, the ones who were so blessed, missing that fact. While Joshua, on the other hand, asked God to deliver a promise that he had promised 45 years ago. And he understood, Joshua did, that God was still in the delivering business. Whatever lot we find ourselves in. God has placed us there for his purpose and for his glory, and he will bring all things to pass that will be for our good. That's either true or Romans 8.28 is a bold-faced lie. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
That's either good, that's either true, or it's not. So folks, what they should have recognized was that the level of difficulty associated with their inheritance would only serve to magnify the power of the God they served. Egypt was a huge stronghold that no man could have delivered them out of. But what happened? God delivered them. Time and time again, you see in scripture, when the ad seems insurmountable, God shows up in force and gets the glory as he delivers his people. And that is what they should have seen here. And that's what we should see in any situation that seems insurmountable. The God who we serve is greater than all. And the God who is with us is greater than he, that which is in us, he who is in us, is greater than he who is in the world. So likewise, there is a greater glory to be bestowed upon our Lord when our sanctification takes us through trials and tribulations than there is when there is only good at hand. As Pastor Caleb stood up here uh, talking about Acts 14 and mentioning trials and tribulations and how they are a part of the Christian life, that is exactly what I was thinking as I was like, wow, this lines up. And we didn't, we didn't like sort of coordinate this. We're going from book to book through Acts, right? But providentially, it's there. It's the fact that when we suffer, when we go through trials, it is that time and opportunity when we can glorify God in the way we go through those trials, in the way we watch God conquer on our behalf. I think of the three uh, Hebrew boys that were in that fire, and when they answered the, the, the king and they said, King, we don't have to answer you, but we want you to know if our God wants to deliver us, he'll do that. But if not, we ain't bowing down to you. And what happened? God delivered them in such a way that all of us in this room are well aware that he is God and that he is sovereign over all things. Oh, that we would have that kind of faith in our lives as we deal with obstacles. So I would venture to say that this lack of faith or insight on their part was probably one of the greatest contributors to the next question I have at hand. Why is there this consistent mention of the various tribes' failure to drive out the inhabitants of the land? Chapter 15 ends with the following words. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. That's when this was written. They were finally conquered under David, and it became the city of David. Chapter 16 ends with the words, However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. And chapter 17 ends with the words, However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim. Uh, well, uh, to the day, typo. In the earliest chapters that dealt with Israel's conquest of the land, it seems like, if you remember when we were looking at the conquest uh, passages, it seems like there was total victory on the part of Israel, which meant a complete eradication of all the inhabitants of the land. But here in our settlement chapters, we quickly found out that was not the case. And this was in spite of God saying, 
that he would surely drive out the inheritance, inhabitants of the land. But wait a minute, let's back up for a minute. Did God say that, that he would surely drive out the inhabitants of the land? Not really. Here is what he did say. This is the very first chapter in Joshua. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Here we find out that their success was contingent on their obedience to God's word, their adherence to it. This is a theme found throughout this entire book of of Joshua. Obey the word of the Lord and the Lord of God will bless you. Obey God's word and live, disobey it, and suffer accordingly. Listen, these folks had the power by God now. Remember, God called them and set them apart. They had the power to remove the inhabitants, an action that would have been in obedience to God's direction. If their hearts were set on God's word and obeying God and seeking his face, surely they would have been successful no matter what the obstacles. But instead, they chose to keep them in the land, even though they had the power to remove them. And at some point in two of the passages, it says that they didn't have, it implies that they did not have the power, the the inhabitants were great, but then when they did get the power, instead of doing what God said, they chose to put them into slavery, to keep them around anyhow. So my question to you, brothers and sisters, can your life be characterized in the same way? God has given you power over sin. But maybe you've chosen not to exercise that power. You're in effect not working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But instead you're entertaining the offerings of the world, your flesh, and Satan. Friend, be warned as is going to be the case with Israel throughout their history because of disobedience. This is a perfect recipe for self-destruction and ungodly suffering. We cannot serve God and money or the world or our fallen human nature. We cannot do it. We have to have a singularly set focus on God, on walking obediently before him, asking that his spirit would empower us to mortify the sin that is within us and that is besetting us in all areas of our lives. Here I'm reminded of God's conversation with Cain. God said to him, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here's the Apostle Paul's exhortation to us in this same area. He writes, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, You will die as they did quantitatively and qualitatively. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So then the question becomes, how do we do well on this road we're on to glory? Which brings me to my last question. 
What can we learn from the daughters of Zelephahad? In chapter 17, 3 through 4, we read the following. Now Zelephahad, the son of Hifer, Hifer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. They approached Eleazar, the priest on Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord God commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. The backdrop of this account is found in Numbers 27, verses 1 through 14. The daughters of Zelephahad recognized that the inheritance were doled out to sons only and not daughters. But since their father had no sons, he died in a, in consequence, as a consequence of his own sin, as recorded in, in Numbers 27. So he died, and, and then they went and they took their case to Moses. Moses heard from God and established, that is God through Moses, that those daughters would receive an inheritance, an allotment, one for each daughter, not just one for all five, but one for each daughter. And so here we should note that it was by faith. Moses didn't even make it into the promised line. But by faith, they're approaching God and asking God to bequeath that which God has promised in the future to them. And so here, as they're going to Eleazar and to Joshua, they're actually exercising the faith to know that God has promised, and now we are going to stand on the promises of God. It's a beautiful thing to see that they are turning to God's word. Here before this, you see a bunch of tribes who walked away from obeying God completely, and now you're seeing right after that a group of five women who are absolutely walking by faith in the word of God, relying in the word of God for their inheritance, for their subsistence, for their possession. God blesses them. And look, we often do not do what these young ladies did. They went to God and requested that God would bless them according to their promises. God has promised us. And when we, the disciples asked Jesus to pray and he said to them again, Give me this day. They were supposed to say, give us this day our daily bread. And when you look at the construct of of that prayer, it is God-centered. We again are called to advance God's kingdom. All that we have is supposed to be used for him and for his glory. And so when we ask for anything, it is with that end in mind. Now, does that mean that you can't ask for a Mercedes-Benz? No, you can because then you can give me a ride. And that's godly, you see and so on and so forth. But the the point that I'm making, though, is that we need to go to God and pray by faith in accordance with his word. And if you're not doing that, you should stand on his word. And this morning we heard it, and let's hear it again tonight. Let us then, Hebrews 4.16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And as our brothers said this morning, when are we ever not in need? The answer is we're always in need. We're always supposed to be relying on our Lord to guide us, 
to keep us. And we're always supposed to be walking then by faith and not by sight. And so as we look at these particular chapters, 16 and 17, we should see how we should not be. That is, we should not be compromising with one foot in the world and one foot out. And you'll see more and more that that is exactly what they were doing, why they would fall. We should turn to God by faith, according to his word, and make our petitions known to him that we might do what he has called us to do, advance the gospel throughout the earth for his purposes and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we saw how you have blessed Israel with that which you've promised, we recognize, Lord God, that you have also blessed us. And in, we can tangibly say even more in the sense that we now know that you have blessed us in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruit. We know, therefore, that your word promised that we too will rise. We know that your word promised that we will be with him forevermore. You promised grace for today and strength for tomorrow. And that you will give us all that we need to fulfill your great commission. And all that we need to stand in any day of trouble. And so we stand this day corporately on your word. And ask that you would give us hearts to remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your word as much as we know that our labor in you is not in vain. Give us a mind to grab hold experientially of that which the Zelophehad's daughters did and give us a heart to walk in the same manner so that it would never be said of us that we did not look to you and the fulfillment of all the promises that you've made to us, which are always yes and amen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.